Good morning. Well, my name is Nate. I've got several new faces out there, and uh, if you've not got a chance to meet me, I'm one of the pastors here. I've got the privilege of being able to open up God's Word today. And so go ahead and open up. Uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, open up to Luke chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 37 as we've been walking through the whole book of Luke together for some time now. Luke 17, 20 through 37. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there should be one close by. In fact, if you would like a Bible and you can't reach one right now, I know Perry's got like three of them right in front of him uh, that, that I saw earlier. Raise your hand. If you would like a Bible, uh, Perry will, will get you one, or you can use your phone. Got one right here. Perry, up here. There you go. All right, anybody else? All right. So either turn there or swipe there with your phone. Luke chapter 17. This is God's word, and, and uh, it just as a, as a word of thanks, gosh, there's a lot of things you could be doing today, and uh, very thankful that you're here with us. It is good. It is, I mean, uh, the worship this morning was sweet, and it is good to be uh, together as a family today. And so if this is your first time here, I hope this is welcome home to you, and uh, we appreciate you being here as we look into God's word, we sing God's word, and I pray that our hearts would be moved towards him this morning. I want to start off with a question. If you knew for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus Christ was coming back in all of his glory within the next month, if you knew for sure, without a shadow of a doubt, he was coming back in the next month, how would you live your life today? What would you do tomorrow? How would that change your life? How would it change your relationships? What would you do about planning for your future? Today's passage, Jesus wants his disciples, and I believe he wants us still today to be prepared for his second coming. It's an interesting passage that I, I think is significantly important for us today. So we're going to pray, and we're going to dive right in. There's a lot here today. Father... Once again, I plead with you, because I know, gosh, we, we so easily get wrapped up in this world with our stuff and our jobs and our to-do lists, and the things of this world can overwhelm us. And so right now, I plead with you that your spirit would allow us to set all of that aside and you would help us to focus fully on you and on your word. And the eyes of our hearts would be opened to see your truth, not my truth. But we would see the significance of the gospel and we would be blown away by it. And you would help us to prepare to loosen our grip on our stuff and to live with an urgency knowing that you could come back at any moment. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, pick up with me, Luke chapter 17, starting in verse 20. I'm going to read the whole passage, and then we're going to walk through it verse by verse together. That's typically what we do. My favorite way to teach the Bible is to walk through a whole book of the Bible. My goal is to teach you what the original author, Luke, intended. He was the one inspired, not me. So I don't want to teach my opinions. I want to teach what he intended, what God intended. This is his word. Listen to it. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answers them. 
The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here, do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first must he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day... Let the one who is on the housetop with the goods in his house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in the night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken And the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? And he said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's God's word. There's a lot in that section. Let's start with the first part. So this is broken down in two scenes. You get the first scene where the Pharisees ask Jesus a question about the the coming kingdom, and he gives them a short response. And then the second scene is him turning to his disciples to give them a whole lot more detail because he wants them to be prepared for it. And so the Pharisees, you have to understand this, the Pharisees, they were asking this question. They wanted to hear Jesus' take on the coming kingdom because they had this theology, this idea. They they believed that when the Messiah came, that there was going to be this political uproar and that the the Roman Empire, this evil Roman Empire, was going to be brought to their knees and this Messiah was going to come in and empower and he was going to take back the throne of David and bring the Israelites back to the golden age of David. That's what they were hoping for. That was their hope of the Messiah. And so Jesus is correcting them in this error. And he says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold. And remember, every time Jesus says the word behold, you ought to pay attention. Okay, that's like him saying, look, pay attention, I'm about to blow your mind with something. And what does he say? He says, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, he's saying, look, the kingdom of God is right here. You're looking right at it. I am the king. I am the kingdom. Now, if your Bible, just this is kind of a side note, some translations will say instead of uh, in your midst, it says, within you, I don't think that's the most helpful translation of this passage. Remember who Jesus is talking about, or talking to. He's talking to the Pharisees here. I'm pretty sure he's not saying that the kingdom of God is inside the Pharisees, 
Okay, these are the same people that Jesus called whitewashed tombs or a brood of vipers, okay? He is saying that, look, the kingdom of God is in your midst. He's right here. You can see the kingdom of God. When you're looking at me, you're looking at the kingdom of God. When Jesus the king came, the kingdom came with him. He even taught his disciples. When he said, go and preach, he said what? Go and preach the good news that the kingdom of God is near. So Jesus is teaching something very significant about the nature of the kingdom of God here. He, the Pharisees, they were looking for a political revolution. They were looking for physical signs of a show of force, a, a conquering king. But in, Jesus says, no, it's, it's a suffering servant that you're looking at. Jesus says, the, the, the long wait for the Messiah, it's over. You're look, the kingdom is here. And that had huge implications for them has huge implications for us today too, I think. For them, it meant that they need look no further for the kingdom than Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. You think about the life of Jesus. He gave glimpses of his kingship, his authority throughout his life. Uh, when he taught, he taught with an authority, a power that changed lives. Uh, he, he healed people, showing that he had the authority over sickness and death. He raised people from the dead, showing that he had the power over death itself. Walked on water, he, he told the wind to stop, he showed he, he had authority over nature. He forgave sins, had the authority to forgive sins. Uh, on, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John even got to see really a glimpse of his full glory as his face shone like the sun. And so he gave glimpses of his authority during his life, but then on his way to the, the cross, think about this, he was given a crown of thorns, he was given a robe. He was lifted up, not on a throne, but on a, on a cross. And above his head was the sign, King of the Jews. And they were mocking him, but little did they know that their, mock, their mocking words actually were true. And in death, he went from being the messenger of the good news to reigning on high as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Rising from the grave, he would defeat his greatest enemies, death and evil, and he would provide a path for those who would follow him into his kingdom. And so for us today, that means we worship a living king who is God. We don't come here to learn how to live moral lives. We come here to worship a person, a God who died for our sins. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the Great Commission. Uh, Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. Behold, I'm going to be with you to the end of the age. And so that's a Great Commission. We know that. If you've been in church, you've maybe memorized that passage before. Jesus, before he left, he gave some of his authority to the church so that we would be a reflection of him on the world today. We're supposed to be a visual reflection, a glimpse of his glory. <coughs> Excuse me. And so as we look around the world, though, it doesn't take us long to recognize that his kingdom has not fully come, Right? We still live in a very broken world. The church is very broken itself. And what we see in this passage and what theologians call 
the kingdom of God is, and if you're taking notes, I would write this down, the kingdom of God is already and not yet. The kingdom of God is already and not yet. So when Jesus came the first time, he inaugurated his kingdom, but it won't be fully consummated until he returns to declare full victory, his second coming. He's promised to come back, and when that happens, he'll consummate his kingdom. There's a few illustrations that I've heard to help uh, us understand this. It's kind of like the seasons, and so this year, I think it's March 19th, will be the official start of spring, but it's not unusual for it to feel like winter far after March 19th, right? And so it's kind of that already, it was inaugurated on March 19th, but it won't be consummated until later on. Uh, Another example, so if Kentucky basketball, if they're playing like some cupcake and they're up by 30 points with 10 minutes to go, all the, all the, uh, the subs have come into the game, the starters are sitting down, the, the uh, managers are loading the bus, right? But the game's not technically over, they've got to finish the rest of the game, so it's a, it, even though the, the game is in hand, right, it, it's already not yet. Uh, one more, uh, if you're a history buff, um, World War II, the decisive battle happened on D-Day, okay, uh, beaches in Normandy, right, the, the, essentially the Allies came together and the, the war was won during that battle, but the battles actually kept going for about another 11 months, until VE Day, the, the day that Hitler and the Nazis fully surrendered to the, to the Allies. And so we live between D-Day and VE Day, Victory Day. Uh, we live in a time where Jesus Christ has declared victory on the cross, but we won't fully see his kingdom come until he comes back and declares victory fully. And so the rest of this passage is Jesus talking to his disciples, teaching them how to live between D-Day and V-Day, and how to be prepared for his second coming when his kingdom will be fully consummated. Notice verse 22. He said to his disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see the one, or see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And so he starts by really, it's a warning to his disciples that, look, there's going to be a day when you're just going to long for me to come back, okay? And so he's inferring that he's going to be gone, and he's saying there's going to be a day, if you, and this is true, I think, of all believers. If you live long enough in a broken world as a believer, there's going to be a day where you say, come Lord Jesus. You long for the, the return of Christ. And what Jesus is getting at in this passage is, when you long for something really, really badly, it also makes you vulnerable to believe lies. Uh, it's kind of like the, the guy in the movies who is stuck in the desert, lost, and he's thirsty, and he sees a mirage off in the distance, and so he starts running towards the mirage, but the mirage just kind of runs away from him, right? Or, or it's like the, the mom who loves her son so much that uh, it's obvious that he's doing something wrong, but he believes all of his lies and his excuses. If you believe something, if you want something hard enough, you'll, you'll, you're vulnerable to believe the lies. And so Jesus is preparing his followers, look, watch out, don't believe those who claim to have seen me or claim that uh, I'm coming back on a certain date. Uh, look at verse 23, and they will say to you, look there, look here, do not 
go out to follow them. And so you think about it, and if you can Google this, the number of times that uh, people have predicted the second coming of, of Christ is ridiculous. I mean, it goes back to like 500 AD. They've, they've been predicting his return over and over. In fact, right now, I think there's like a half a dozen people predicting his return in the next 10 years, different dates. It's crazy. And not only that, there's some who have claimed to actually be Jesus. We talked about that in cross-training earlier today. And unfortunately, there are many who have followed these lies. And so Jesus is saying, look, don't drink the Kool-Aid, all right? If somebody claims that they they know when Jesus is coming back, or if they claim to be Jesus himself, do not believe that. And this is why. Look at verse 24. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. And so when Jesus returns in all of his glory, there will be no doubt. There will be no need of anybody spreading rumors about it. There will be no need of social media pushing it out there. There'll be no need for the news to run some kind of story. Everybody will know it. Everybody will see it. It'll be obvious, just like lightning. It will be sudden and it will be evident. If you're taking notes, sudden and evident. (coughs) Excuse me. Verse 25. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And so he's, he's pointing again to the cross. The cross has to come first. He has to deal with sin first. Before the Son of Man returns, he would have to leave. And again, he's preparing his disciples so that they're not devastated when he dies. And so he goes on to describe what the world's going to be like when he does come back the second time. Look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. All right, so if you go back to Genesis 6, you don't have to turn there. I'm going to read it. Uh, Just a quick snippet of what it was like in the days of Noah. Uh, Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So every motive of their hearts, all the time, evil. That's what it was like in the day of Noah. And so it's going to be like that again when Christ comes back. Verse 27, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given of marriage until the day of Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. In other words, they were going about their daily routines. They were eating, they were drinking, they were getting married. They had no idea that God was about to destroy them. They were clueless because they loved the world more than they loved God. And so Jesus uses a second illustration. Verse 28, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Okay, so just like Noah's day, they were going about their daily business. They were buying and selling and their normal routines, eating and drinking. They had no clue that it was about to rain down sulfur. And so it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. You see, for many people, the day when Christ returns, it's not going to be a celebration for them. Uh, When when he comes, it'll be a surprise for many, but for those who have not trusted in Christ, 
and followed him as king, it's not going to be a, a pleasant surprise. It'll be a day of judgment. Jesus goes on in verse 31. And on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. And then he says, remember Lot's wife. So what's he saying here? Jesus is warning his disciples not to be in love with this world. Not to be in love with the things of this world. When he returns, your stuff, your possessions, your money means nothing. Uh, Scotty Smothers, I was talking to him earlier this week he, about this passage. He used to be a, a fireman here in Shepherdsville. And he says, Nate, you'd be surprised how many people, when their house is totally on fire, will try to run back into their house to grab their stuff. Often it was like an Xbox or whatever they, they cared about. Jesus is saying, when I return, you best not turn back. He says, remember Lot's wife. Lot's wife turned back, looked back because she loved the world and the things of this world more than she loved God. And God turned her into a pillar of salt. And so he says, don't do that. There's an old Puritan pastor a long time ago. His name's Richard Baxter. And he, he said something really wise. I, I just want to read it to you. It, it's very insightful. He says, there's a great deal of difference between the desires of heaven in a believer and in an unbeliever. Uh, and he's inferring something. He, he says, I mean, what unbelievers... Think about this. What unbelievers that you know that have a belief of heaven and hell are going to choose hell, okay? None of them are going to do that. In other words, this is what Baxter is saying. The way a believer wants heaven is different, though, from the way that an unbeliever wants heaven. This is what he said, and this is what blew my mind when I read it. He says, the believer prizes heaven above this world, but the unbeliever prizes heaven over, only over hell. Let me say that again. The believer prizes heaven over this world. The unbeliever prizes heaven only over hell. To, to the ungodly, there is nothing that seems more desirable than this world. And therefore, he only chooses heaven over hell, but not heaven over this world. And therefore, he will not have heaven upon a choice. Do you see what he's saying there? He's saying exactly what Jesus is saying in this passage. If your arms are around your stuff and holding on to your stuff and gripping your stuff, your, your, your Xboxes or, or your crops, like Jesus says, if the place that you feel like you really belong is this world, you'll get exactly what you want and it won't be heaven. Jesus puts it this way in verse 33. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life will keep it. And Jesus is actually quoting himself there. He's already said this to the disciples. It was in the context of him also saying that, look, whoever doesn't pick up their cross and follow me is not worthy of, follow, of me. And so Jesus, like Kyle Adelman says, he doesn't want fans. He wants fully devoted followers. He doesn't want leftovers. He wants your first and your best. He doesn't want a piece of your heart. He wants the whole thing. He requires total surrender. He, he wants your total 
allegiance. The greatest commandment. Um, the greatest commandment. Uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. And then love your neighbor as yourself. That pours out of our love for God. He wants all of us. And so Jesus finishes his teaching by warning his disciples of the urgency of today. Um, if you're taking notes, his return will be sudden and final. There will be no more chances. So I tell you, verse 34, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together, one will be taken, the other left. So Jesus is most likely referring to the rapture here, that when he returns, the, the believers will be taken up with him, removed, and he will separate the believers from the unbelievers. This is when the judgment will happen. And again, he, he's urging his disciples to be prepared. And he's urging us today to be prepared. And if you're an unbeliever, he's urging you to, to trust in him. Don't wait. You never know what tomorrow might hold. Now, his disciples were a little bit slow in listening sometimes, and so they ask in verse 37, Where, Lord? And he says to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In other words, he's saying that, look, it's going to be evident. You don't have to ask where. Just like you look up and you see the, the vultures circling, you know what's going on there. It's going to be evident. When Christ comes back, everybody will know. All right, two practical applications from this passage. Number one, live with urgency for Christ. Live with urgency. What do you want to be caught doing when Christ comes back? What do you want to be caught doing when Christ comes back? I think of, about basketball games, um, at least in college basketball. The, the, the players try I think, for the whole game. But when it comes to the, like those last few minutes and the game is on the line, there's a whole other level of urgency and energy that they have. I think that's how God is wanting us to live, with that type of, of urgency. New Testament authors call the days that we're living in the last days. We ought to live with that kind of urgency. The game is on the line. And so Jesus is he's imploring his disciples, look, be ready at any moment I could come back. It, we ought to live as if Christ could come back right now, that his return is imminent. And so maybe for, this, for you this means that you leave here today and you go find your loved ones and you share the gospel with them because you don't know what tomorrow is going to hold. I, I know urgency will cause a person to stop caring what other people think about them. I mean, think about the mom who loses their kid in the mall. And what do they start doing? Screaming at the top of the lung, their lungs their child's name. Okay? They don't care what anybody else thinks about them because they have this urgency about them because the loved one that they, that they care about is in danger. When we live with urgency, we're going we're gonna to share the gospel. We're not going to care about what other people think about us. Maybe for you, this means you start praying passionately, not simply for your situation, your circumstances to change, but for hearts to change, for your heart to change, for your family's heart to change. Urgency is going to lead you to have calluses on your knees because you're begging God for his help. 
Maybe for, the, for you this means that you start sacrificially serving, that you're not just serving when it's convenient to you, but you're giving up maybe sleep for Mark 12 or, or financially. Maybe this means you're, you're, you're giving sacrificially. But the urgency was, is going to cause you to run hard and it's going to cause you to run fast because you know that eventually you're going to have eternity to rest. Uh, I know some people say the, the phrase, maybe you've heard this before, that Christianity is not a sprint, it's a marathon. I would argue against that. Uh, I don't think, because a lot of people, they use that and they, uh, they use that as an excuse to be lazy and, and not to live with urgency. Because I'm, I'm running a marathon. I just got, I got to pace myself, right? I think more accurately, the, uh, the Christian life, it's not a sprint, but it's also not a marathon. It's more like a tough mutter, right? Where you've you got to work really hard and there's obstacles that you've got to get over. And you're going to get dirty and messy, but you gotta, if you want to win that, you've got to work hard every second of every moment and you'll get to rest at the end. Live with some urgency. Maybe this means for you, you sell everything and move to another country as a missionary. I don't know. Jesus says, though, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. Second application. Number one, live with urgency for Christ. Number two, loosen your grip on money and possessions. Maybe, well, <laughs> I know that there was two things I thought of that, that uh, have reminded me of how much stuff we have here in America. Um, I remember when I was a teacher, I was teaching sixth grade, this is up in Ohio, and we had a, a science unit on recycling and landfills, and so we visited the local landfill. And I just remember seeing the, the mountains of junk that Americans had thrown away. And thinking, gosh, there are so much, there's just so much stuff that we don't need. We, we have more stuff, many of us have more stuff in our, in our closets than the vast majority of the, the world will own their entire lives. We have another thing that I, I remember, I've had the opportunity to go to a third world country a couple times. I went to Africa once and then went to Peru. And I remember being blown away. When I went to Africa, there was these little kids that were playing, not with toys that they had bought from Amazon, but they were, this little boy had a, a, an old shoe that he had found in the trash, and he had tied a string that he found and was pulling it like a little kid would pull a car. Totally content, though. Played with scraps of wood that we had um, left over from some benches that we were building for a, a church. Totally content. I remember, gosh, how spoiled are we here in the United States? Or when I went to Peru, and I, I remember we, we drove up this mountainside, which was really scary, by the way, and we drove into the mountains, and uh, we came upon this village, and it was a whole village that was a bunch of shacks. Not these t cute little tiny houses, but literally these shacks that were built out of scrap wood. Whole community, there's one water faucet in the whole village that everybody shared, and they were totally content with it. And I remember coming back to the United States after experiencing those third world countries and just going into the grocery store where there's just an abundance of food that's easy to get to and you just put a piece of plastic in a machine and you pay for it and you go on. 
And I can remember thinking, gosh, how spoiled are we? And I, at first, I just wanted to, like, give all my stuff away and, and uh, uh, just because it was, it was almost just, uh, just frustrated with myself that I had fallen in love with stuff so much. But I tell you what, it didn't take long. Uh, the world we live in, I, I very quickly fell back in love with stuff. Uh, we live in a world where there's just stuff all over the place. And so Jesus calls us to loosen our grip on money and possessions. And maybe, maybe for you that means you begin tithing regularly, sacrificially, joyfully. Maybe for you that means you start giving to Mark 12 on a regular basis. Or you go on a, a spending fast where you recognize, okay, there's a lot of stuff that I buy that I really don't need. I need to stop shopping for the, the deal. You go on a spending fast. Maybe for you, that means you need to just get rid of some stuff. You donate some stuff or give some things away. Maybe for you, this means on Christmas, instead of giving your kids toys, you give them an experience. You start modeling for them and teaching them and cultivating a spirit of giving in your children. I don't know what exactly it means for you, but I know... My heart for my own life and for our church is that we would be a people who live urgently for Christ and that we loosen our grip on our stuff, that we, we would set the tone for our community of being a church that is radically generous to our community. And so let's pray that God would help us to do that because it does not come naturally to us. You pray with me. Father, again, we recognize that we hold way too tightly on to our stuff. And we are very easily just overwhelmed by this world and we forget that you're even coming back. And so I pray that our hearts and our minds would long for your return, we would pray for that, and that we would be prepared for it, that we would live our lives every single moment of every single day for your glory, that we would be willing to give up everything, knowing that we'll spend eternity with you. We'll have forever and ever and ever to enjoy you. So change our hearts, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.